This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. How's it going, everyone? In this episode, we have Brian Romanski. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Owl Cyber Defense. In this episode, we talk about hardware and how hardware is actually helping us in cybersecurity today. Brian is brilliant. He has 25 patents, which is insane. He's a crazy inventor and has some brilliant ideas. I'd like to take a moment to thank our newest masterminds on our Patreon page. Samara Williams, Napoleon Bean, and Ashish Ranjan. Thank you so much for joining our family and look forward to working with all of you. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more episodes at hackervalley.studio. And as always, you can support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash hackervalleystudio. I'd also like to thank Owl Cyber Defense for sponsoring this episode. And you can find out more about them in the show notes. And with that, let's get to this exciting episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in our studio. Today, we've brought in a very exciting and special guest. We've brought in Brian Romanski. He is the Chief Innovation Officer at Owl Cyber Defense. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hi. Great to be here. Yeah, Brian, just looking over your background, it it looks incredible. It looks like you've invented so many things. You've done so many things in so many different industries. For the folks out there that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah, I've had some great opportunities. You know, I kind of stumbled into the cybersecurity world like a lot of people, right? So my background is electrical engineering and had visions of working in robotics and automation and cool things like that, but got sucked deeper and deeper into cybersecurity and cryptography. Uh, spent a bit of time working on uh, hardware security modules to protect uh, secret keys and distribute secrets. And then was recently got sucked more and more into you know protecting protocols and, and data with uh, the work that I'm doing at OWL, which is a little different from the, the traditional crypto and, and cybersecurity approach. So one thing that I've noticed, and especially when you said that you wanted to work in robotics originally, is that when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be in robotics, but I always knew I wanted to be in technology. I know you have so many inventions. Did this sort of interest in your passion really began in childhood? And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, the focus on technology and electronics was was there. So my dad was a, a technician for a major uh, television broadcaster. And so it was kind of fun to, to go to work with him and be surrounded by cool technical stuff. And we always had gadgets around the house and, and ample tools and stuff to play with. So that was a great, great start. So yeah, I never never questioned the fact that I wanted to do something in technology. It was only uh, over time after I got into industry that I started to move away from sort of the hands-on physical hacking of stuff into more data and you know, cryptography and, and the more math-oriented side of things. And then, as I said, 
the work I'm doing right now is bringing those two together. So I've kind of come full circle from hands-on circuit-based stuff, getting into crypto and math and protecting stuff with secrets. And and now I'm moving back into physical circuit-based protections and, and bringing those two together. I'd love to unpack that a little bit. You know, it sounds like there was an interest in electrical engineering, and then you got pulled more and more into cybersecurity and protecting devices and also data. What led you to going down the route of cybersecurity? What was the origin story there? Well, at the time, so I'd, I'd taken a job. I was working at Pitney Bowes, which Pitney Bowes, most people wouldn't recognize me, perhaps, but their claim to fame is they make postage meters, devices to pay for mail, which, you know, once upon a time was something that was a, a critical industry. Today, maybe not so much, but uh, when I had joined, we were moving over from mechanical metering of postage to purely electronic metering of postage and was part of the team that helped figure out how do you do that safely. So, One of the weird things about postage meters is that it's basically a a machine that prints money. So you're you're printing basically stamps on envelopes and you need to have lots of these machines out in the world and and they individually uh, dole out little bits of money. And oddly enough, people are actively trying to hack them pretty frequently. So trying to come up with electronic means of managing and accounting for funds, doing it in a way that you could print on an envelope efficiently was kind of a a unique and interesting challenge. And then that got us into all kinds of e-commerce and packages and shipping. We actually built out the platform that eBay uses. If you want to pay for shipping through the eBay platform, the team that I worked with at Pitney Bowes created the core technology that sits behind that. So yeah, it carries on today in in that shipping and and e-commerce world. That was my my transition from pure electronics into cryptography. That was the the first use case that, that I got into. And then found, you know, as I, as I learned about public key cryptography and the interaction between physical hardware security modules and the root of trust out in the world and the emergence of IoT, that kind of got me deeper and deeper into the, the crypto world and cryptographic means of protecting secrets. That's fantastic. I mean, so what gets you out of bed today? What are the challenges that, that you're loving tackling as we speak? Yeah, so at Owl Cyber Defense, we do things a little bit differently. So our history, you know, we, we are a, a company that was predominant customer base of ours is U.S. intelligence and Department of Defense uh, applications. And one thing that's interesting is that for, for things that really matter in the, the defense and, and intel world, they have very unique ways of protecting networks and protecting data. So in places where they're moving data, say, from a secret to top secret network or classified style information, what you find is that they don't use conventional firewalls or or network protection. They'll they'll have a layer of that somewhere in the network, but what they they rely on for the things that matter most is what they call a cross-domain solution or a a CDS. Actually, we we just uh, published a new ebook that is a definitive guide to cross-domain solutions. If you want to read more, there's, there's lots of details out there. Definitive guide. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. These these CDS systems, the basic architecture is data comes into it and there's a preprocessor that does some filtering and processing. And then it passes the data through a hardware enforced uh, one way transfer device. Usually it's an optical link that moves data one direction. And then there's another processor that receives the data and, and does some additional filtering on it. And the military and the Department of Defense has, has found that, you know, this architecture of you know, independent processing on the send side and the receive side 
with a one-way transfer in between is the most reliable way to safely move data from, from one network segment to another. So we, we make solutions like that. We make cross-domain solutions of various types. And then we also make a commercial version, which generally is referred to as a data diode. So a data diode, like an electrical diode, is a device that moves data in one direction. But then to do that in the real world, where you've got two-way protocols and bidirectional protocols, you generally need to do some sort of processing to extract the raw payload from the data to handle the normal two-way communications of data coming in and going out. So we have a variety of solutions that, that help commercial customers, usually in critical infrastructure like power gen or mining or oil and gas extraction, places where when things go wrong, stuff blows up and, and people can get hurt. That's where technology like this is used. And so to your, back to your question, what gets me up is um, this is a nice merger of both digital uh, data protection. So we do some filtering and processing on the data in the, the digital domain. We do some conventional cryptography in terms of source authentication and data privacy and protection, but then it's married to a layer of hardware enforcement that is a little bit unique. So when people talk about hardware enforced security, usually you think about a hardware security module, so secure boot or key management, and and certainly our products take advantage of the, the best commercially available solutions for that. But then what's really proprietary and unique is the way that we do the the actual data handling. So I mentioned in in these cross-domain solutions, often you have a one-way transfer, which is often an optical link. So basically you have an optical emitter that's sending out data, you have a receiver that's that's pulling in the data. What's special about that is it's physically guaranteed the data flows in one direction. There's no way to reconfigure it or make a policy change that says, well, I'm going to sometimes allow data to go in the other direction. The connection just isn't there. It's, it's physically guaranteed to only flow in one direction. So that's a very basic level of hardware enforced, or sometimes we refer to as a deterministic security function that says, it's guaranteed it'll always do this one thing and do it really well. What we've started to develop at, at OWL is a set of techniques to go beyond just the one-way transfer. So we are now developing filters, data filters that run in hardware that are equally deterministic. So if you say only a certain data type is going to flow from one point to another, we can actually validate that in hardware and guarantee that that rule will always be followed and always be applied correctly. It's a little different from a conventional firewall or or other security measures where generally you have a, a CPU that's executing code and you create a set of rules. And modern firewalls, you know, some of them are running on embedded processors and using HSM. So they, they have some pretty good physical countermeasures. But at the end of the day, it's still software running on a CPU. And what we hear from our defense and our intelligence uh, customers in, in that world, basically anything that's running on a CPU, they assume either has been compromised or will be compromised. And so they don't trust it. So they want to see something that is deterministic or guaranteed to always work correctly. And so what I find really exciting is this sort of new new paradigm shift of moving more and more cybersecurity from a a conventional CPU over to true hardware-based, or usually it's implemented in a, a specialized FPGA, field programmable gate array, where you can lay out a circuit and a config file, put it into a chip, and guarantee that it's going to execute correctly every time. Right. And speaking of keeping, like, what keeps you up and so interested in the technology, you know, one-way diodes and the type of things that you're describing exist because of attacks that have occurred. What are some attacks or trends that you followed or have helped eliminate or reduce with 
owl or just your personal efforts? Yeah, well, one that's been in the news lately, been a lot of attention around a, a set of attacks referred to as Ripple 20. So yep. a group called uh, JSOF or JSOF in, in Israel um, published a set of attacks and they're, they're a big concern because these attacks are basically against a very popular IP stack, TCP IP stack that's used in a lot of embedded equipment. And um, unfortunately, these attacks can flow through a lot of conventional network gear. So unless you're explicitly looking for them, most systems won't detect or, or stop them. Conveniently, it turns out that our technology, the way it works, does effectively block these attacks and many others like it. So when we move data through our, our data diodes, we do something we refer to as a protocol break, which means that we receive data on the incoming side, we extract just the raw payload from the, the packets that we receive, move that through the one-way link, and then we rebuild the entire TCP IP stack on the other side from scratch. And that means that if there's any low-level attacks that try to exploit vulnerabilities at the sort of low-level TCP IP messaging layer, we block those because we're not passing the raw packets through, right? Only the payload data gets moved through our system, and we rebuild the stack from scratch with known good structure, known good format. So the Ripple 20 attacks, uh, we're still going through testing to validate this, but based on what we've seen and read so far, looks like our technology, without any foreknowledge of what the attacks were, what the vulnerabilities were, just because of the architecture and way it's designed, blocks those attacks. Same thing with, um, there's a set of attacks a little while back called Urgent 11 against VxWork system. It was a very similar thing where it's a set of attacks that take advantage of sort of low-level vulnerabilities built into certain VxWorks platforms, often used in the, the healthcare and medical industry. And again, our technology, because of the way it works, because of this very strict architecture where we receive the data, move the payload through, and then rebuild the IP stack, we protect systems against those types of attacks. Looking for more ways to expand that hardware-enforced capability is, is the kind of stuff that we find really exciting. Being an inventor and being extremely innovative takes a combination of two things, both understanding the current state of things to an extreme degree, but then also looking into the future as to what things might be like. Would love to hear a little bit about what you think about the future of security solutions. We've grown so much in the last 10 years. It seems like everything is changing every day. I'd love to hear what you think uh, the future is going to look like. Yeah, well, I think there needs to be a paradigm shift. So for you know the last decade or so, right, there's been this, you know, a fallen into this this trap where cybersecurity tends to be a cat and mouse kind of a game where the attackers come out with some new attacks and we rush to patch systems and add new scanning and, and vulnerability detection. And, you know, we're constantly chasing after the latest, you know, zero-day exploit that, that just came out or just got published. And I think we need to find a way out of that ever-escalating cycle, right? So, the hardware-enforced cybersecurity mechanisms that I mentioned is one way to do that. So moving security out of a conventional CPU and into hardware-enforced filters, it changes the paradigm because the types of attacks change dramatically, right? You're not trying to trick a CPU to execute arbitrary code anymore. You're, you're not trying to navigate your way through some sort of a hardware-enforced filter. So the, the types of attacks are, are very different. The nature of the patching mechanism is different. And so, you know, that's what I see as a big part of the future. Now, you can't do everything in hardware. You do need to rely on, 
you know, the, the power of the, the Turing machine or the, the programmable CPU is, you know, it's dominated the world for a good reason. It's, it's very flexible, can do many things, can be reprogrammed. But to the extent that we can protect those inherently vulnerable systems using hardware enforced mechanism, I, I think we'll will help change that, that story, change the continual sequence of patching and updates and really move towards, you know, application-specific filtering. So uh, a lot of the solutions that we offer, rather than trying to treat network traffic as, you know, raw network packets, often we, we try to be very aware of, well, what's the application that's running? Where's this data going? And what's the system that we're protecting? And let's really narrow down the scope of the data that we'll deliver based on what that system can handle and is expecting to handle. So security mechanisms that are tailored and tuned to the environment that they're in and the system that's receiving the data, I think is a key part of where things are going. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. One thing I'd like to ask for folks that, that are as in touch with the reality of things as possible, is there such thing as an unhackable system? And is that even possible in the future if it's not available today? I would hesitate to call anything unhackable. I mean, there are, as I said, deterministic systems. So one of the benefits of hardware-based mechanisms is that you can fully define the input-output transfer mechanisms and you can pretty extensively test the vast majority, if not all, of the possible combinations of, of inputs and outputs. So we refer to that as deterministic because you know exactly what it's going to do. It's different from, again, software world where things can be, anything can happen. Once you break outside the bounds of what the system was intended to do, the attacker can take advantage of that and do anything else they want. So a deterministic system is at least predictable and you can define what it does. Now, that doesn't mean it's entirely unhackable. I mean, a clever attacker might find ways to leverage well-known paths through the system to do things that you didn't expect. But it's much, much harder to launch an attack that way. It's much harder, even with just the one-way mechanism. So the, the one-way enforcement that our data diet products do today, they generally block command and control, right? So if I can only throw packets into a system, but I never see a response from it, or I never, never get to learn what it did, or conversely, if I'm only getting data out of a system and there's no way to get to new packets into it, well, that dramatically limits my avenues of attack and what I can do. So even if a system has a known vulnerability and, and maybe I can somehow trigger an exploit, if I can't take advantage of that two-way command and control, it really limits what I can do with, with the system. And so, again, a lot of our customers in that critical infrastructure or defense world where they really care about life and, and safety and, and trying to protect their systems and protect their people, they'll take advantage of that and, and leverage it. So... Coming back to your question, is there anything that's truly unhackable? I'd, I'd hesitate to say that. I would say there are deterministic solutions that are, are very predictable and repeatable and will not do things that were they were not intended to do. So that only leaves the avenue of an attacker using them in, in some malicious way that would have to find a very narrow gap through the, the system to, to exploit it. And it's, it's very hard to do. And there's very restrictions or tight restrictions on what they can do, even if they're successful. So I'm pretty confident that most deterministic systems or that are well-constrained, it'd be very difficult to execute a, a meaningful exploit against them. Right. Seems like it would be a, a pretty difficult to do some recon and even get to the point to where you know an attack is going to work without just throwing guesses out there. Yes, exactly. You know, right now, during the time of this recording, we are working from home, most of us. And a lot of organizations are going through a digital transformation 
and relying more and more on software. And I even fall into this boat. What advice would you have for organizations that are relying more heavily on software for the protection and security of their data and assets when there's technologies like hardware solutions? How do you incorporate that when you are moving further and further away from maintaining your own hardware? So the main theme, I mean, the simple answer to that is defense in depth, right? That's been the, the theme for, for several years, and, and it is a good strategy. So you do want to have active monitoring. You do want to be looking for known attacks. Uh, be aware if, if somebody is trying to exploit a known exploit against your systems. You want to pay attention to that because even though you might block or stop the initial attack, they may escalate and find some new vulnerability that you weren't aware of. So being vigilant and, and paying attention is, is important. As I mentioned earlier, one of the, the key things that, that we're moving towards and, and we think is really important is this notion of application-specific security. So trying to throw general-purpose security solutions at, at any kind of a problem is going to have very limited effectiveness. So to the extent that you can really constrain the network traffic, the network access to your software-based systems, we think that that gives you much more effective security. We see this happening, you know, what's referred to as next generation firewalls are, you know, basically application specific firewalls where you can have rules that are tied to a particular use case. You know, maybe it's an e-commerce system and your firewall is only looking for certain types of transactions that are related to an e-commerce system. That's a really good step in the right direction. What we're trying to do is to take that to the next level of actually putting some of those rules into hardware so that you can't accidentally misconfigure them or maliciously misconfigure. I mean, if you go back um, a little while back, there were some well-publicized attacks against an AWS platform. Now, it wasn't Amazon necessarily that was vulnerable. It was the system that was on it. An operator had misconfigured a virtual firewall, and, and there was an exploit that was taken advantage of because of that. So it wasn't really a fundamental flaw, but... Any time you have a system where an operator can make a mistake and leave things misconfigured is a potential vulnerability, right? You've got to pay attention right. to the people as well as the technology. So to the extent that you can eliminate the ability to do that, to eliminate the, the potential for things to be misconfigured, it's, uh, it's going to be better. So again, application-specific and, and eliminate the option for humans to make mistakes or either intentionally or accidentally is what I would recommend. You know, it's funny just having this conversation. It's, it seems like what is old is new again, because like Ron said, people are working more remotely. You know, we're looking at more and more applications. The Internet itself is becoming more and more application based. But you are going the other direction and you're looking at hardware based approaches. Would love to hear how kind of how you're scaling that. How are you spreading your your abilities throughout the community? And what are some of the efforts there? Well, I mean, a lot of the applications that we're involved in today are very physically relevant. So if you're talking about a power plant or a large turbine or something like that, I mean, it's a physical asset that you're trying to protect and you're putting your countermeasures physically at the asset. So the scalability is really a matter of, well, you know, can we protect all of the assets that matter and, and be everywhere where we need to be? So today, that's a lot of what, what we do. Looking to the future, we have looked at ways to take some of these hardware-based mechanisms and virtualize them or, or make them available in a virtual environment. So today, you know, through all the major cloud providers, you can rent a physical HSM, a hardware security module, that is sitting in a rack you know, somewhere at, at a data center. 
and has secret keys sitting in, in secure storage and it'll do operations on your behalf securely and, and it'll use hardware and, and physical aspects of the system to protect those keys. You can imagine an extension of that where I could have a data processor that's sitting in a rack in a cloud service provider somewhere that is an application-specific hardware filter that has you know, very restrictive rules on what it'll allow through. They're enforced in hardware. They're, there's no way for the data path to make a change to what those rules are. And so I could route data to one of these data processors using a you know, conventional authenticated mechanism like uh, TLS to authenticate that data is going to the right data processor. It can apply the filters and hardware that it has and then deliver data to some potentially vulnerable application sitting behind it and just make sure that that application doesn't have any direct access to the outside world. So you could imagine a world where, you know, I could rent one of these hardware application-specific filters and, you know, have secure access in and out and make sure that my vulnerable application is protected behind it. Does that address your question? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Thanks. Yeah. So as a security professional like you, me, Chris, and anyone else that's listening, or are you just an enthusiast, what are some questions that we should be asking our vendors to make sure that we are looking into the future with our products and also securing our data and our assets, our people? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the things you, you do, want, do want to ask about is, can the system be misconfigured, right? Uh, what are the ways in which an operator, again, can uh, intentionally or maliciously leave a back door open or turn off the filtering or turn off the ability to check data? Back when you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the call, uh, cross-domain solutions or, or CDS systems, and one of the requirements there is that for every data path through the system, there has to be dual redundant filters. So basically, when the data comes in, it gets filtered and validated and then when the data goes out, it gets filtered and validated again. And there's some strict guidelines around the fact that those filters can't be identical. So you can't just apply the same filter twice. They have to be different filters. They might be looking for the same things, but they have to be implemented differently, preferably in a different language by different people. So if there's a flaw in one of the filters, it likely doesn't propagate to the other one. So you have two independent ways of doing things. So that's kind of an extreme countermeasure, but that's exactly the kind of thing you're looking for. You know, is there redundancy? Is there backup? Is there, you know, a way to make sure that your policy is being applied, being applied correctly? Maybe make sure that one operator can't disable your controls, right? So have dual administration so that if one operator decides to make a change or turn off some countermeasures or turn off some filters, they can't fully make your system vulnerable or, or you know, open to an exploit. You need two people to collaborate to do that. So look for redundancy, look for resiliency against an accidental or malicious user, and also look for resiliency against flaws in technology. So again, this sort of dual redundant or two filters back to back, you know, it gets back to the defense in depth, but it's really layering things on top of each other that you got to look for. So when you're talking to vendors, you know, ask, does your appliance or your service do that? Does it have this notion of resilience and redundancy? Does it collaborate with other tools or some way to, to naturally combine it with other things so that you get that kind of defense in depth easily as opposed to doing it in an ad hoc way? I'd like to pivot just a little bit to you again, 
What are you doing outside of work? How do you keep your head level, especially with all the stuff that's going on with COVID and things like that? What do you do for your own personal stuff? I don't have much time outside of work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of what I do is is related to work. So my day job right now, I'm focused again on these hardware-based uh, filters, but I still have an interest in cryptography. So an area of interest for me is software updates and quantum secure software updates. So as we've all heard, right, quantum computing is a, a potential threat. It's not clear if a quantum computer exists or some people who theorize that maybe the national, the state actor level, there is some quantum computing capability. Some people will deny that. But either way, it's it's likely to exist at some point in the future. And one of the, the concerns there is in a post-quantum world that breaks a lot of uh, public key crypto and, and existing algorithms. Now, there's a lot of research going into figuring out, okay, well, what's a post-quantum algorithm look like? So what does the PKI of the future look like that can be resilient against a, a quantum computer attack? That's all very interesting, but, but for me... I separate that out to two separate worlds. And today it's, it's convenient that the same PKI techniques can be used to do a session-based management. Like, a, you know, I can set up a TLS session using the RSA or elliptic curve cryptography. That's pretty cool. And I can use the same techniques to protect a software update. And it's, it's just convenient that the same cryptography can do both. I think in the future, we're going to see a, a division where the types of crypto or countermeasures used to protect long-term secrets will be different from the type of crypto used to protect ephemeral or short-lived secrets. So transaction processing will need some sort of a new future quantum resilient algorithm, and there's a lot of work going on there. But I think long-term secrets, things like software updates or root keys in, in systems or the ability to distribute public key lists so the systems can authenticate peers, that type of long-term secret is going to need a different type of protection. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in understanding what's that going to look like, because I think it's different from the mechanisms that are used for more ephemeral systems. So an area of interest for me is hash-based signatures and, and understanding practical ways to do that. Brian, thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us today. For anyone that's interested in learning more about Brian and the stuff that they do at Owl Cyber Defense, drop on down into the show notes and you'll see some links there to learn more. And with that, we'll see everybody next time. Mm -hmm.